Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're off, we're off, we're off. And we are off. And this is another launch of the HMS fan club. <laughs> and hopefully we won't be uh, approaching any choppy waters today. Um, uh, yeah. Good. I don't know. No, it's about boats. Is the problem there? Yeah. Um, so I did start down like an avenue that um, that. Uh, uh, yeah, we've we've smashed some champagne on the side of HMS Fan Club, and we're ready to set sail. Let's hope we don't hit a massive iceberg and drown. Is that not good? Don't know what that's got to do with anything. Seems a bit, seems a bit random. So, um, because of boats. Yeah, yeah, boats. Right. Ships. Uh, Sorry, I, I thought you were just talking shit again, but in actual facts, um, it, it did have a point, and I'm sure if I listen back to this episode, um, it'll make, it'll make perfect sense. I'm not a big boat person, but there is a, a lovely, where it's still there. What about little boats? Do you like little boats? Uh, I'm a little boat. Yeah, I'm a little boat person. Uh, but there's a lovely shop. Do you ever think about? Do you ever think about taking a dinghy? Taking a dinghy where? Well, I just mean it's not too late. We can always pause the recording. There we go. <laughs> oh, if that's not if that's not five star family fun size fan club, then I don't. Log really off like now that. and it'd still be good. This show. What are you going to say? You're not a big. You're not. A, you're not a fan of giant. I'm not, I'm not, not like I don't know a lot about it, but I'm, there's a there's a shop on um, in Neil Street in Covent Garden, which just sells nautical clothes and equipment, and I often quite fancy getting myself like. Um, one of them sort of stripy shirts with the long, long open things they have in the windows. They sort of sell things like rope, the ropes, what? nautical, the, the long, nautical stuff. The long what? What, what do you mean? Do you know those like? Um, do you know those shirts that they wear in like uh, naval things, like Kirk Douglas in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? So like, oh, I can what? get one of them. What like Donald Duck though with the flap? No, no, not so much that. Like the sort of stripy one, and they've got the sort of quite, they've got quite wide, wide collars. Not collars, but like neck, neck holes. Sure. You know I mean? Yeah. Okay. Well, I can yeah, imagine you wearing one of those white, you know, woolen jumpers with a, uh, with a hat. Yeah. And I a, quite like with, a, with, a, with a captain's cap and big, big open collared sort of like. Uh, uh, navy blue. Um, I can't pull off many clothes, but no. that's what I often see and go, ah, oh, that's a good look. I think that that Kurt, I think that Kurt Douglas thing, though, is um, it's going to be one of those impulse buys, isn't it? Where it, is. it looks, looks good in the shop, but you'll never wear it. You'll wear it once in front of a mirror, maybe once, maybe once out, out loud, and then you'll be like, ah, oh, do you know what? I've had a couple of occasions like that, though. I once bought um, a uh, pea coat because I watched um, Three Days of the Condor, is it called, with uh, Robert Redford, and he had a pea coat, and I went, oh, I'm getting a pea coat, they look good. And I didn't look as good as Robert Redford in a pea coat when I got one, I just looked like me in a pea coat. So it's not, it doesn't have the, the 
the right effect. That is similarly. Yeah, I've bought the green jacket that um, uh, a Jamie Fox has in uh, Django Unchained, but similarly, didn't don't look like Jamie Fox. I bet that looks well good on you, though. Thank you, thank you. He's got he's got a bloody nice coat in Django Unchained. He has, he has. It's a nice coat. Bloody nice coat indeed. But it is difficult. It is difficult to recreate things where you go, oh, that's a good look. I might get one. Yeah, of course, of course it is. That's why it's a challenge. That's, isn't that what life's all about? Finding, shouldn't be plain sailing. Oh, every day. It should be, uh, should be kind of like uh, a series of tiny little challenges and then sometimes big ones. But I don't really like the, I don't really want, do you know what I would like? I feel like I'm challenged on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I'd like one day where I don't have an insurmountable challenge in front of me. Just a day to just enjoy. Even a seemingly, um, you know, straightforward day can, like, rear up all sorts of fucking horrific fucking hurdles in front of you. And I just long for, not the easy life, just a couple of days off where I'm not really fucking worried about it. But um, there's always tomorrow... So, I, yeah, I, I, had, um, I had to do some TV a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. I think this year it was. Mm-hmm. And um, I went for a very bold look. And, um, and I think I sort of felt okay about it at home. Because um, none of my clothes fit anymore. Because I've, I've put on so much weight in the last. This is this is this is natural. I think like no one knows what to wear. Like it's now that we kind of opening up again. I think it's natural not to feel like. But who knows how people dress outside? <clears throat> it's not that I don't know what to wear. It's that um, none of the clothes that I own fit. Um, I gave up drinking and smoking at the beginning of the year, and I went on a diet. And I think one of the things was going to snap. And I think it was going to be everything all at one go. And so I was just like, oh, do you know what? I'm not going to worry about the diet so much because I'm less concerned about that um, for now. But um, it's been one of the only things that's been keeping me going, eating. And now it's got to a point now it's just like, actually, I don't want to do comfort eating anymore. And uh, I've got to go back to the gym, which is good because they opened on Monday. Uh-huh. So I've got to gear up. You know, it's like a, you go to the gym. I don't see the point going to the gym once and then again in three weeks' time. It's like a commitment. And you go, right, this is my project. I'm going to do it three or four times a week until I'm happier with what I look like and what I want to be. So, in the past, it's been like I've been topping up, but I've never sort of like just sort of let myself go. And to be honest, I did really well through lockdown, where I was going to the gym and exercising and when I could, but I wasn't overeating and I wasn't doing all this other stuff, and I was always getting a bit of exercise. Found this year so far a real struggle, and I uh, not having. Uh, cigarettes or drink to sort of like this has got a bit serious isn't it it's all right it's all right um um, we'll talk about um uh chris farley in a minute um we um 
so so yeah so i without having like alcohol as a, a way of kind of like just sort of um uh, you know it's, it's like, like a mood time as well isn't it it's something to do and it's uh it, but I, I i can see how that would be that's going to be a you've got something well, to replace it with and actually you're right though i think like my diet's been appalling for, for a year but like see uh, m- my mine wasn't and then and and recently it has become appalling and a you got to allow it but now it's to the point now i want to go back to the gym so i, I was talking to my mother last night i said to my mum and she's like going well the gyms are open now you can go to the gym and you go yes i can that's good but mentally it is the biggest challenge that I've ever had. I think I'm the heaviest I've ever been. I've always been quite big. I fluctuate between being, you know, overweight and probably just overweight. But I, I think I think I've always been overweight. Um, and my goal is, at one point in my life, I want to be bang on what I'm meant to be, and maybe I want to look good. And that was what I was going to do in my 39th year, leading up to my 40th. Um, and uh, and then I don't know. I just I'm I'm not good enough at it by myself to be able to just get on with it in lockdown. And I haven't got enough spare room to buy a fucking Peloton. So it's uh, all money. So it's like okay. Um. So. So yeah. So my point is like, what is my goal? I want to lose. Mm, I wanted to lose a couple of stone before this, and I don't. I, I'm too scared to weigh myself. So I reckon I've got between three and four stone to lose before I'm in a zone where I'm happy-ish. Um, and so it's like, oh, the gyms are open now. That's a good thing. And you go, yeah, that is a good thing. But it is the start of let's lose four stone. Yeah, I, I think and that. And I need to sort of, like, work my way up to, okay, and now I'm ready. And also, I don't want to put in a load of work and then all the gyms to be closed and then it'd be like, okay. Yeah, I do have the opposite thing. But a wise man called Nick Helm was saying to me a year or two ago when you were when you were seeing Kenny and getting your, doing your exercise a lot, you were like, but you could just lose weight in a couple of months and you just have to start now. So it's more about the the idea of living two months ahead and be like, oh, well, I'll just have got rid of it by then and just think well, of it what, in terms, right? What month were we in? January, February, March, April, mm-hmm. May, June. If you started now, you could yeah. be, well, if you started now, you could be in great shape for summer. Yeah. So I guess that's the way of thinking about it. It's like the old story where someone says, Oh, I want to be a doctor, but to be a doctor, you've got to train for seven years, and I'm old now. Um, if I if I trained for seven years, I won't be a doctor till I'm 48. And they say, well, how old will you be in seven years if you don't do it? Still be exactly the same age. Time's still going to move on. You go, a little, little fable fear there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So it kind of doesn't matter how old you are. You're always going to be the same age in the future. I didn't, I didn't mention age. Why are you going on about age now? Because we're talking about time. If you say... Well, you, I could have lost well, you, brought that, you brought that up. 
Yeah, it's, like that, it's like that Mike Bubbins joke, isn't it? Um, <laughs> where, where he's like talking to his wife and he says, oh, God, I feel so... Oh, OK, I'm going to get it wrong. But it's something along the lines of... I feel so old and useless. And my wife said, oh, Mike, you're not fat and old and useless. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... <laughs> Funny. It's a good joke. It's a really good joke, but um, but it's not. You know, I didn't bring up age, so come on. Well, I perhaps I'm feeling it because I've uh, I'm, I'm probably about two weeks away from my birthday, and uh, I'm sort of feeling. Uh, I'll be forty-two. So in my head, then I quite like telling that story of the fable and putting me in that position because in seven years I'll be forty-eight, whereas in two weeks' time. In seven years, I'll be 49. Okay, well, maybe we're thinking about it wrong. Maybe we're thinking about it in terms of years, and you're That's thinking like... That. You're, right, you're, you're saying... That, mental attitude. You're saying maybe when you're 43, mm-hmm. you know, 40. you'll finally... When you're, yeah, but when you're 43, in a year's okay. time, you'll finally get your life in, in check, right? Or whatever. Mm. Whatever your goal is. Yeah. Hmm... Well, I'm pretty happy with the way my life is, Nick. I'm going to... No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> absolutely not. No, I'm, I'm, I want to change everything about my life. Um, but yeah. I think that's it. I'm, 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 I'm trying to be better about it. But this year has felt a bit like I, I have allowed myself the opportunity to be a bit, not give myself a hard time about it, because there's been nothing I can do about it. Sure. Whereas now... Now, like you're saying, gyms are open. And even though it is totally, you're right, and it's tough to go, oh, you've got to get your head around starting something. But that sort of is the challenge, isn't it? You've just almost got to think about, yeah, well, if you flash forward two months in the future, having started now, I will be better off. I mean, I'm bad with that stuff. You know, I'll make excuses not to do things all the time. And I was doing, you know, for years I was doing that couch to 5K, and I'd do it, and then I wouldn't keep it up. And then I'd start again. But the nice thing about starting again, which is the opposite of what you're saying, is that I found, like, when I started again, I was going, brilliant, these runs are all easy. But because I like... And then then I realised that one of the things I do with it, I get certain... I get so far with it until it gets difficult. Then I make excuses not to do it. Then I leave it so long that I have to start again when it's easier. So I'm always doing the easy stuff and never going on to anything that's hard. But I think that that's... um... That's understandable. Okay, right. How do we? So we could, we could so we we could say that in a year's time or in two years' time we're going to be in a position that we're happy with, right? But we could yeah. also say and that's a year, right? So I could say, by the time I'm forty-one, I want to do this, or by the time I'm forty-two, by the time I'm forty-five, by the time I'm fifty, you know, that's my five, that's my ten-year goal, yeah. But um, but we could say by July. Yes. In eight weeks' time. Okay? Yeah. I reckon I want to lose about four stone. That's me saying what I'm, I want to do. And I've got to do something about it, and I've got to do something about it soon, because I'm not happy, and I don't, don't want to buy all new clothes. Yeah. And I don't want to... Um, uh, and I want, when we're all allowed to go out, to be able to go out. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to... And the gyms are open, and I, and it's just literally a case of me going right. 
the gyms are open. I'm looking, I'm at the foot of a mountain and I'm looking up it and I'm just taking a bit of a breather as I work out what route I'm going to take. And then I'm going to take my first steps. And But it's, 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 not, it's not like um, there's loads of places to rest along the way. Uh-huh. It's like when you start up that mountain, you've got to get to the top. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's not a case of turning around and coming back. It's a case of being halfway up the mountain and dying because there's no oxygen and the Sherpas have left you. Right? So we're in mid-April. So let's say April, May... June. Well, let's just say end of June. That gives me two and a half months. I'm going to be in better shape then than if it like this seems like a real shit goal, right? But if I can be in the same shape as I was before Christmas uh-huh. by June, then I've undone the damage I've done to myself this year. That's and I don't, I don't regret the damage because um, it, this I, at the moment I'm playing a game. You know that wooden slot game where you have the tiles and you have to slot them around and make the picture. I'm kind of like playing that with physical health and mental health at the moment. And I uh, gave up, I gave up drinking, um, which I think was the most important thing for me at at this time in my life. Um, I don't know whether I'll drink again. I might do, I might not. But for now, this year, I'm not drinking, right? So that was, that was like the thing. And um, I thought that that was the most important thing for me, like physically and mentally. So that's good. I, I thought what I had hoped was that a lot of the noise in my head would disappear. And because everyone knows that alcohol is a depressant. So if you drink alcohol, then uh, it has like this knock on effect where you're in sort of like this general depressing, uh, what do you call it, a malaise. Um, but nothing's changed. I'm still feel exactly as I did. I'm not drinking, so that's my positive. But in terms of feeling mentally happier and better about myself and everything like that, that hasn't changed at all. And actually, you don't have that crutch, which is alcohol, to sort of like knock yourself out at the end of the night. So, um, so now it's like, what we, what, what are you going to do? So I guess I want to go back to. So it's been a trade. So it's, it's kind of like me sort of like um, uh, enjoying food and sort of like all that other stuff. It's been a trade because I've been very hard on myself for a very long time. And now I'm just trying to reach a point where I can be happy. And the food stuff has made me happy for a little bit, but it's always a temporary fix. Because yeah. now it's like you can't exchange one uh, crutch for another crutch. So I think now the thing is, or if you're going to do that, make it a healthy one. Like, um, I was making frames for quite a lot. I know how to make frames now. I've ran out of space at the moment, so I can't really make frames. But um, I was learning how to do something that was useful. That took up a couple of uh, hours every night. Watch a film a night. That took up, like, a couple of hours every night. So it's, like, stuff like that. But now it's like, okay, right, in the day, in the morning... I'm going to energise myself. I'm going to go to the gym three or four times a week if I can get in, and if not, the equivalent of. Um, and by July, beginning of July, I'm going to, end of June, I'm going to uh, either be in the same shape I was before Christmas or better. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? 
Um, well, a lot of what I'm going to do is probably going to be dependent on what happens in the next couple of months because everything's sort of uncertain with work. That's right. We've got a couple of months. That's exactly right. We've got a couple of months. Um, no, I want to try and, um, I don't know, like kind of change... Um, change my sort of circumstances, I think, and try and sort out all the things I've saved up. Like, I've been I've been going through things like comics, and I'm trying to clear clutter, and I haven't been out of clear clutter because I haven't been able to go to any shops, so I need to go to charity shops and sell things or uh, get just get rid of things and clear all the clutter out of my life so I don't have those things hanging over me as jobs I need to do. So I want to clear all the things that I kind of use as uh, uh, crutches in those ways to be like, I've got to get that done, I need to get that done. So I'm literally left with like a totally open plan where I can kind of feel like I can do things again. So are your crutches um, having a list of errands to do hanging over you? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not the stuff. It's not like having boxes and boxes of comics. Yeah. Because what I would say about your comic collection is you used to work in a comic shop and you have connections with people. If you ever wanted to get those comics, you could get them back. Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, no, yeah, and I wouldn't want to get them back either. I know it's more, yeah, it's more, I, I, I've realised that, is it? Because of how much better I feel when I get rid of anything. It's like, so it's oh, not the I, stuff... So it's not the stuff you own that is your crutch. It is the fact that one day you want to get rid of it and that's what's hanging over you. And yeah, at the moment there's a pan but at the moment there's a pandemic and you don't know how to get rid of it all. No, 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 sort of the, the opposite kind of is that now there's a pandemic and I, I really have kind of sorted just for everything out. So now I'm literally getting rid of it, which is great. So that's my next thing to do is like I'm just about sorted everything out. So I can I'm at the point now where I can start clearing everything out and i feel i feel the weight of it off me and i've realized that for ages that's been a big thing that i've been like i've really got to sort this stuff out really got to sort all this clutter out and the nice thing about the pandemic it it was one of those things where you go i'll never get around to that because i'm always busy and the nice thing of the last few months has been you know what i'm not doing it i could do that now and i have been and i've just about done it so it's that it's it's that clearing the clutter, sort of, um, uh, and that that sort of gives me space to feel a bit like, right, well, I can kind of get on with things now. And also Absolutely. just, I've been so acclimatised to staying in all the time. And even last summer when things were a bit more open, I was still a bit like, oh, I don't want to go out much. And the pandemic still felt like it was still very much out there and about. And so I do feel like I've absolutely wasted a year being indoors. And like I say, I've got, like, this will be my second birthday in lockdown, and it will be, like, now I think we've virtually done a year of Zoom fan clubs, which tells me, like, right, we've just done this for a whole year on Zoom, and I know that my birthday was one of the first ones we did. Oh, it was? Yeah, what, the Bob Saget one, wasn't it? It was my, That's uh, right. was my birthday last year. So it feels like, right, I've lost that year, but if I can come out of lockdown having achieved stuff, then even though I don't necessarily know what I want to do next, I will feel like I've got nothing hanging over me 
that can prevent me from doing anything. Yeah, I think that, I think that that's great. I mean, I feel like, um, I mean, I've sorted out my office. So I got um, I got a flat with like a, an extra bedroom, but I'm not married and I don't have kids, and um, so I got this. And the idea was always to have like an office because I work from home, but it was just a, 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 a sh- you know a shit room where you just throw stuff in there and close the door and don't ever look at it. And I've come out of lockdown with a really amazing office. I can work in here. It's separate from the rest of the house. It's not, but you know what I mean? It's like it's, a, it's its own... It's nowhere near the bedroom, it's nowhere near the living room. And um, it's got everything I need in it. And it's great. And I didn't have that at the beginning of lockdown. I've managed to... You know, I've, I've come out with... I've come out... But it's like, it's like trying to operate in a submarine that's underwater. And you need to, you know, and that's, that's your flat. Oh. And it's kind of like... If you want to get anything out of your flat or you need assistance from someone else, you know, you need help from someone else, it's like trying to get... It's like a procedure. It's trying to get someone onto your submarine or something off your submarine yeah. with all of this, with all this stuff. And it's been like that for a year. It's been really difficult. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not great, but I've sort of carpeted a floor a little bit. I bought, a, I bought a rug that was the same size as the room and I glued it down. Um... Which was a temporary thing until we got a, until I could get a carpet guy in, but I think it's fine. And you know, I've got better at DIY. I've bought a load of tools. I've sort of, I mean, I used to be good at. Yeah, you know, I feel like I've, I feel like I'm. It's stuff that could have been put off for a year, but in actual fact, or maybe it's stuff that could have been done a lot quicker. Maybe it was the idea that if I'd have been able to have people over, I could have done all the changes to my flat in in days rather than weeks. I uh, think you've been yeah. really good at that stuff, though. I'm I'm really impressed because I'm no good at that DIY stuff, and having had you do it, and also learn things like not not even hanging frames, but like making frames, is a skill that's like right. Well, I never would have thought about learning how to do that. But like that's it. If you're not na- like I'm not naturally good at DIY and putting up, you know, flat pack furniture or anything. I hate all that stuff. And I'm always impressed when people can do it. So it is. I think anything this year, genuinely, I think anything anyone's done is an achievement because I think it's been, it is, it's like doing stuff underwater or something this year. It's almost like it's so easy to be defeatist about it. And it's all of it's like um, walking through molasses, as they say in uh, uh, old westerns and things. It's that in Tennessee, in, in Tennessee Williams plays um yeah sure uh, yeah i think you I, I think you're right i think it's important to be positive and i don't i do you know what i went out for lunch yesterday um and uh it was cold um i didn't go out for lunch i was doing something else and i was near a place and it was lunchtime so me and uh, my girlfriend went for lunch and we sat there and it was cold and we were sat next to some city types who were on one side there was a big mixed group of uh, men and women. Um, I think they were from a bank and they were having... It was a nice restaurant as well. Why not? Why not? I think any restaurant would be nice at this stage. But this was a nice one. We went to the Granary in... Um, is it Granary Square or... Is it 
um, St Pancras Square. Anyway, it was nice. No alcohol, which was sort of like, oh, dear. Do you know what to order now? Do you like? Does it? Do you have a, a drink or well, something? Well, for drinks, for drinks, I do think it's pointless. I got water I, or something. No, I drink Coke, but um, diet Coke. But um, they had Coke Zero. I drink Coke Zero. Whatever. I mean, I can. I I have no value to soft drinks. So I would always be like, if I was in a pub, I would be like, I'm not getting near a soft drink. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind buying alcohol, but soft drinks are overpriced, right? Um, but I drink so much Pepsi Max Cherry that, like, I've got no value for what, how much a soft drink is worth. Yeah. That's and, changed as well. When I used to work in pubs, like, a Coke was, like, 80p. And, and that's about the right amount. That's... But now it's almost, if you have a Coke now in a pub, they go, well, it's like half a pint, isn't it? So it's like, if you get a pint of Coke, it's the same as having a pint of beer. You go, well, it isn't, is it? It's like having a soft drink. It's like having, it, it, it still should be about 80p. Yeah, and also, it's never enough. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want a small Coke. If I'm going to have a Coke, I would like unlimited Coke, please. I would like... <laughs> You know, it's got to at least come in a pint glass and then it's got to be free top-ups for the rest of my life. Because it's, you know, I can drink a Coke in, you know, 15 seconds. And <laughs> and alcohol, I can sip. Mm. But Coke is something that, you know, I'm a so Coke we, addict. Yeah, we could have another Pizza Hut buffet and we can keep really getting our Cokes. Too fucking right. That's the best thing about it. That's the fucking best thing about it. And Nando's. Um, but anyway, we went to this restaurant and we ordered some, uh, like, some nice uh, salad-y things. It's nice. Um, uh, and the food was delicious and the service was sort of great, but it is a bit annoying now having to wait for someone to get you the thing when you're like, oh, if I was at home, I could just get it myself. <laughs> And then there was the bankers next to us on one side, and then there was the group of men on the other side, um, who I guess all have different professions, but teamed up to uh, talk about women. And it was like this thing where you're just there, and you're like, going, "This is lovely. Oh my god, the service is great. Oh, we will have sparkling water, please. Oh, this food. Have you tasted your food? My food's lovely. What's your food taste like? Oh, it's great. It's a bit cold." But it's still nice. It's still nice. It's chilly, though, right? The heaters aren't really working that hot. But it's still nice. They're loud on the table next to us. And, uh, but, uh, oh, the, oh, the main course has come now. It's cold, though, isn't it? It is cold. <laughs> and they are loud. And the people next to us have just started being a little bit sexist in earshot. It is actually uncomfortable. Actually, can we just get the bill, please? We won't look at the dessert menu. We'll just get the bill... <laughs> And uh, should we get an Uber or a taxi? Well, there's a taxi rank there. We'll get a taxi and they'll get us home. And then within mm, <laughs> 10 minutes of paying the bill, we were in bed with the heaters on, with the electric blanket on, watching Strangers on a Train, going, all right, we're never going to leave the house again, right? <laughs> it was like perfect afternoon and we would never, be, we'd never <laughs> been happier. Never been happier than being in our electric blankets watching fucking... You know when the when it's not... It's not the afternoon, but it's not evening. It's just about like four-ish or five-ish, mm -hmm. and it's overcast outside. Perfect weather for watching like an old 
uh, Alfred Hitchcock thriller. And uh, that's what we did. And it was much better than going out. And I don't think I'm ever going to leave the house ever again. No way, sirree. Um, we've got to play a song now. Got to play a song. And then, and then I guess we'll, we'll introduce the show. <laughs> cold open. It's a cold open. It's a cold open. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Oh, we're back, we're back, we're back, we're back, we're back, we're live in the studio. We're not live and we're not in the studio. So my name is Nick Helm. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. And um, first rule of fan club, tell your friends. Second rule of fan club, please, for. The love of God. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Don't know where we are in Malta, but uh, I think we're pretty much... Uh, I think we've just been told where we are in Malta. Oh, no, we've been no, told. We haven't. Uh, if you've got any fan mail to send in to us, uh, send it to fan club at foobarradio.com. Uh, we'll look forward to that rolling in. We're 180 in Malta. Fucking hell. How, I just can't crack this Maltese. I thought the plan was that we were going to be in the top ten in Malta this week. Is it that the Maltese are like, they want to be, they like being told off. So you know, if we ask them to, they won't do it. Almost like you're doing the opposite of what we asked you to do. It feels oh, like we're no. very poor. We're, we're in a bit of a bad relationship with Malta. My patience is really fucking wearing thin with fucking Malta, I tell you that. Mm. I tell you that. It was one of the top places that I was going to visit. It was, it was top of the list of places I was going to visit when we were out and we were allowed to travel again, when the travel bans lifted and, you know, we were allowed out of our flats and all of this other stuff. I was thinking, I'm going to go to Malta, see what that's like. But uh tell you what, it slipped down my list to 180. Yeah, how'd you like how'd you like that Malta? There's 179 countries I'd rather visit than yours at the moment. Oh. But that's all that can all change, can't it? If we oh, get in your if we get in your top ten, Malta, then uh, I'll come running back. Malta, I'm not going to run. Malta has just launched a scheme paying tourists to visit. That can't work. Can it? That's a bad idea. Is that because you spend money on stuff when you're there, maybe? That must be it. You spend your hotel bills and things. Well, I don't know. It's a tourist trade, isn't it? It's, it's like if it looks, if it appears that they're having fun, then uh, maybe they will have fun. You know, it's, um, that's, it's kind of like you've got to spend money to make money. I suppose that's the, that's the, that's the scheme. That's the plan that they're... The scheme, yeah, the scheme, which will pay visitors up to 100... Hundred euros, right. approximately eighty-six pounds. When they book a, a stay at a hotel for at least three nights, yeah. But can you just give them like a bottle of champagne or something like that? Like, a, you know, I don't know. I'm, do, I'm not telling you your place, Malta, but maybe if more of you were listening, we can help you out a bit. That's all I'm saying. Why don't you Maltese people tell us about the skit? No, don't bother. But just listen. Tell your friends in Malta. That's your best. So, time. so I did an episode of. Um, uh, Sarah Pascoe's TV show. I don't know. I don't think I've signed a non-disclosure agreement, whatever it is. 
I don't think it's a secret. That, that was, it's not a bad thing, is it? It's all right. No, but but I had to be on, you know, and I was so I panicked, and I ended up wearing a polo shirt and double denim, a polo <laughs> neck, a polo neck and double denim, <laughs> which at the time I felt good in. I and think then, that's good luck. That's like what with, a race car driver would wear in the seventies, and a nice absolutely. And I sort of like so I don't like anything about my appearance. I don't like what I, I don't like my hair. Don't like anything. I went on and I did it, and I thought, you know what? I've made the best, out, the best out of a bad situation, and now I'm just sort of like thinking, why did I wear that? <laughs> and I've just got like the whole build up. Do you know what I mean? And it will be, it will, it will go on TV in a couple of months' time, and <clears throat> I don't know if I'll see it or I won't see it or what. It, all dependent on where I am, who I'm with, whatever. But it'll be there forever, that episode. And it'll be a little... I filmed that during COVID. Do you know what I mean? You can tell. Because it's going to be... I was going through that at that point in my life. Hmm. So the jury's out. But um, any listeners that do catch it in the future... It was tough times. It was the only thing that fit. (laughs) Right. So what have you been, Nathaniel? Mm-hmm. We've got 15 minutes to talk about this. What have you been a fan of this week? I watched loads this week. I watched loads of documentaries on... I got Now TV so I could watch the Justice League film a few weeks ago. I've been mm. trying to take advantage of Now TV while I've still got it. So I've been watching all their documentaries. I've been watching... I watched The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. Very good. I watched is the it? Is that the Judd? Is, is that well? Is that the Judd Apatow? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what, a documentary. Yeah, yeah. That's his sort of whole life. Very good. Um, I've watched. Well, tell, us a, tell us about that. I love Gary Shandling. Well, it's it's kind of it's he's literally got these diaries from when he was a kid that, and Judd Apatow has known him since he was a kid. Basically, he used to write to him. Like it starts off. It's like Gary Shandling wrote to George Carlin when he was young trying to get into stand-up. And uh, George Carlin drove to see him at a local club. And George Carlin had basically gone through all his material and gone through it and said, this is all really good. This is this stuff's better than this stuff. But if you want to be a comedian, you're good enough, essentially. And so Gary Shannon's basically done that as well all his life, where he kind of takes on almost like a mentorship for people he likes and he's done it to feel like Sarah Silverman, Judd Apatow, Sasha Baron Cohen, um, a few others, I think, as well. But like anyone he kind of reaches out to and kind of has helped out people he's seen. And this is Judd Apatow as filmmaker going back. And one of the things he introduced him to are these diaries he did. And he's, the Zen diaries, because uh, Gary Shannon's a Buddhist as well. So he's kind of, he, he's got these like Buddhist ideals. And he's gone through it, and he sort of... There's a joke at the start about how kind of boring these diaries are and how they're of no interest to people. And yet it's then Judd Apatow, after Gary Shannon's died, going through these diaries and putting together this, like, biography, essentially, of of him in documentary form. And it's a real, like, appreciation as well of just how good he is or was at, at, at doing everything and how everything is done with this such high level of craft. And if he's going to be involved in anything, he wants it to be good. 
and it has things right down to them when they asked him to do things like the um, the DVD extras for the Larry Sanders show, that he basically treats it like he's working on a brand new project. And so he films all this extra material. Um, he basically makes documentaries that are like proper Gary Shandling documentaries about the making of Larry Sanders. And he completely kind of strips himself bare and what was going on in his life. Um, and it's, and this, this whole thing is almost like everything he creates is, is this thing where people are talking about it. Like he's like an artist. He really, everything he's involved with, he treats in this completely artistic way, even if it's a really small thing. And he even does things like that um, kind of awkward interview that he did with Ricky Gervais on channel four. And he's also, he's, annoyed in himself but then takes it upon himself to make that part of the show so he goes oh if i'm annoyed with you with ricky Jace in real life i'm going to stay with that feeling and even though it might be a bit of an awkward interview it's going to be better tv it's all that sort of attitude like right well i'm gonna do that then and we'll we'll have this um so he was annoyed with ricky gervais essentially it was this thing where he agreed to do the interview based on the idea that Ricky Gervais was going to do some interviews for the Larry Sanders show DVDs. But when he gets there, Ricky Gervais is kind of in his house and going through his stuff. And he arrives home and he's like, I, I'm actually really annoyed about you going through my stuff when I'm not there and didn't agree to that. And Ricky Gervais is being doing what Ricky Gervais does and kind of pushing his buttons a bit. And when Gary Shannon kind of realises he's annoyed about it, he kind of stays with it and thinks, oh, actually, if you're making a show, this show is going to be a lot more interesting if it's not like a celebrity chat, if I stay with the idea that that's annoyed me. Mm. So we'll do. So it's almost like at the end of it, he sort of says, well, I've kind of, I'm kind of doing you a favour because it's better television. It's more like real than if we're doing like a um, just a sort of celebrity chat with each other where we're pretending to be great mates. I'm going to be like you've kind of annoyed me and you're in my home and you're messing with my stuff and I don't like it. Mm. Um, but it's, it's that almost like everything, even something like that, like an interview, he wants to try and turn into like, can I turn it into a Gary Shandling funny thing? Or like, can I make it like, like more like an episode of Larry Sanders? Or can I make it, can I do put a bit of his sort of magical fairy dust on what he does onto things he's just tangentially involved with. Or if he's on a talk show appearance, how he can kind of make that, make it sort of like an event or make like a, make it interesting. And partly, I guess, it's making it interesting for him. But it's also like everyone's like, well, it's much better because he's he's kind of trying to create these... I guess it's that thing about when people talk about live comedy and anything can happen. He's kind of applying those kind of rules to drama and talk show appearances and interviews and um, doing interviews for his DVDs and extras and things. It's just like, mm. it's really, it's really good. Really liked it. Okay. Well, yeah, that's definitely, and you saw that on Now TV, but. Now TV. Okay. Right. Uh, and then what was the other thing that you said? Well, you said you've seen loads, but what was the next thing that you said that you were watching? 
I watched uh, the Bee Gees documentary, which I thought was really interesting. Mainly because oh, I know- I've taped that. I've taped that. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Uh, just because it's it's a thing where you watch it. I like I like any kind of music documentaries. I really like how people kind of intersect and meet each other, and and it was it was just interesting to me. Mainly because I realised that I knew nothing about the Bee Gees, even though I thought I did, because they're so familiar and they've been part of my life. You kind of think. Hey, I know about the Bee Gees. But like almost like every five minutes, it's like I knew nothing about that. And I don't know if it, how good the documentary is or just how much it was like everything was like new, new information. And it's like, I must have known this. I must have known that. And it, but I think they are just one of those bands who are so omnipresent. And yet I knew nothing about them. Well, <clears throat> when was Saturday Night Fever? 77? So, uh, was it 77, 76? I thought I would have... If I was going to guess, I would say 78, but... Because 77 was the same year as Star Wars, right? Yeah. Uh, 77. It was 77, right, OK. Well, yeah, because also Star Wars went disco, didn't it? Yes, and, yes. And you would think that, uh, thought that if it was after Star Wars, then there might have been some Star Wars songs in there. Because it was huge... Well, that's um, one of the things that comes up in it, where they say that um, they're doing it. It's not going to be a particularly big film, um, but they launch the album and the single before the film comes out. And then the producer, who's the agent of the Bee Gees, is like, I think we need to open on bigger, more screens because it's a big hit song. And I think, is it Warner Brothers that make it? And are like, well, we'll do it, but... We'll only release a print in people's towns if if it's in the top ten there. So he's like, all right. But it just gets to number one everywhere, the song. So it's almost like the deal he's met means that Warner Brothers basically have to have agreed to open it anywhere it's number one in the charts, which turns out to be everywhere. So it opens. It's this film that isn't meant to be a huge film, but in 77 opens in every town. So like Jaws or something, it's like... a. It's, they've made so many prints of it that every, virtually every cinema in every town is showing Saturday Night Fever. And it's just like a phenomenon. And there's a bit where you've got the guy on TV and they say, uh, it's like, well, how much money has it made? And he says, well, it's made like 100 million. And the guy who's doing the interview kind of doesn't believe him. And he's like, well, if that was true, it would be like the best-selling album of all time. And he's like, it is. It's the best-selling album of all time. And it's like, oh, right. And you sort of realise how big a phenomenon Saturday Night Fever is, the Bee Gees are at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and that whole moment is that you think... And you think of it almost like Jaws, Star Wars, but almost like Saturday Night Fever is kind of part of that. It just doesn't match, you know, it doesn't match. I would say it's, it's one of... It's the 70s film that I think goes alongside those films as iconic, yeah. you know. But what I was going to say based on that was that was 77. I was born in 1980. Mm-hmm. So in if the Bee Gees were at the very height of, like, their popularity. And then within my lifetime, like, I remember there was a Kenny Everett sketch about the Bee Gees where they were sort of... Uh, he played all three of them. And... They've, they've, uh, there was the Clive Anderson stuff. Um, but the Bee Gees went from being like this huge band. I mean, they did the Sgt. Pepper movie with Peter Frampton. Oh, God, have you seen the Sgt. Pepper movie? I'd love to see it. 
I've never it's, seen it. I've, I've got it on DVD. It's, Alice Cooper's in it. It's, uh, it's fucking awful. And also, you're just watching it going, why? Like, why? Like, why, why have you made this film? Like, who's it for? Like, it's, so, it's such a weird film. I thought about that like, after I watched the documentary, because you think, why the Bee Gees, of all the people? And then you think, why? Oh, they were the biggest band in the world. <laughs> you know, there was, a, there was that period of the late 70s. They're the biggest band on the planet. By far, but then, but then, and then, uh, so so they're sort of like uh, derided and like the the butt of people's jokes throughout the eighties and nineties, but then they're also. Uh, you know, take that and doing cover versions of them, yeah. and uh, and they're also really well respected. And do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like within my lifetime, even though just before I was born, a few years before I was born, they were the biggest thing on the planet. Within my lifetime, they were kind of like, they really were like up and down all the way through until kind of like later on in their life, it was kind of like, oh, do you know what? They're really good songwriters. And it's, 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 I don't know, a lot of the stuff around it kind of gets in the way of the fact that those songs have really lasted. I, I, I like the Bee Gees, but, um, but yeah, it's kind of like, it's it's really interesting to I mean they've just they stayed with it they had longevity didn't they mm. they were, they weren't like a flash in the pan and they were around before they were around before Saturday Night Fever and then yeah that's around. it they've got this thing where they're kind of contemporaries with the Beatles really and it's uh, really it's really weird, weird that they they made Staying Alive and I mean if it's the biggest album of all time so Sylvester Stallone off of the back of Rocky, and I guess Rocky too. some of the Rocky sequels that he'd directed, Oscar-winning screenwriter Sylvester Stallone, who was doing films like Nighthawks, and even First Blood was sort of like a drama. Mm-hmm. But before Rambo 2, and he, he maybe he'd done like three Rockies, and he came along to do uh, sa- uh, the Saturday Night Fever sequel, hired as writer and director of the movie Staying Alive. And rather than get the Bee Gees back, he got his brother Frank Stallone to do the music. Was he the biggest yeah. musician on the planet at the time? Um, no, he was like uh, right. within the. I think he was number one in Malta. <laughs> right. um, he was Frank, one eighty. He was in. He was, he was number one eighty in the charts in Malta. Frank Stallone does sort of like. Um, songs on a few Stallone movies, Sylvester Stallone movies. And he's one of the bad guys in Hudson Hawk. Um, and um, it's just such a baffling choice where you go, well, and St- Stallone is always kind of like, I had to pick my family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But surely there's a little, I mean, it's a terrible film as well. Like, it's sort of an unpleasant, unwatchable film. Um, but, like... It's weird because, like, Saturday Night Fever, based on that album and what you just said, based on that album, you know, John Travolta would have been the biggest star ever. Uh, And then, uh, based on Staying Alive, John Travolta started going to the gym because he was working with Stallone and he wanted to get really, like, ripped. Apparently Travolta was one of the people who always thought it was going to be a massive movie and everyone else is kind of like, nah, I mean, like, there's nothing about it that's going to be a big movie. And apparently when he was filming it, Travolta was like, do you think I'll get an Oscar nomination for it? And everyone thought he was deluded. And then he does. You know, it's like kind of, it's like, no, of course not. It's like a dance movie. And he's like, no, it's really, it's that kind of, it's one of those kind of films where no one's got any faith in it, apart from the producer. 
who's like, mm. oh, it's going to be massive. And Travolta, who's like, this is going to be massive. But I guess it's more like, I guess if you're involved at all in that world, you might be like, oh, yeah, this is going to, this is about to kick off. And it's just the That's kind of plans at the time when this goes as big as it is, you know. It kind of yeah, lands. But- They're making it before it gets big. But it was also coming off the back of something like Greece, mm. where he's done a musical, like a traditional musical, and now he's doing sort of like a modern musical. Um, I don't know, we've got to do fan mail in a little bit, but I just wanted to tell you that I'd seen... Um, I, w- I watched Jurassic Park this week. Okay. I've got headphones, and I'm watching my TV with headphones on. And it's uh, I've seen Jurassic Park a few times over the recent years and you kind of go yeah special effects are sort of still all right um uh, but i was really absorbed in it i've watched a few 90s films i watched a few good men i watched the scent of a woman and i watched Jurassic park and what i would say is there's a in a way that i've never really noticed before there's a definite style to early 90s movies like films that were made between 1990 and 1995. And it's a real start I in, in my head, I think Rob Reiner is one of my favourite directors of all time. And in my head, I would say, uh, without watching it recently, um, A Few Good Men is one of those classic courtroom dramas. Gritty, realistic... It's like one of those like big performances for people to get their teeth into, but everyone is kind of like. And I rewatched it, and it's Aaron Sorkin, and I was absolutely sort of like my mind was blown by the fact that it's this really sort of um, like nineteen fifties screwball script. Everyone is very broad. It's really broad. Tom Cruise is doing this really broad, almost comedic. If you told me it was a comedy going in, you know, there's the there's there's the murder of the Marine. Yeah. And then every single every single character in it has got a zinger. And it's like in a way that in a way that, that character wouldn't have a zinger, he'd just answer the fucking question. But they've all got zingers and everyone's zinging it. And then you've got Jack Nicholson that comes into it. I've seen a few Jack Nicholson films, but we haven't got time. But I've seen a few Jack Nicholson films. I'm really like I've always gone, I'll give De Niro a proper go and I'll give Pacino a proper go. And I know that they're good, but Jack Nicholson is like one of those guys which is just like I've not seen a lot of the films that made him who he is. I've seen The Shining and Cuckoo's Nest and, uh, you know, some of the later ones, but it's kind of like, you know, it's Jack Nicholson. You sort of grow up knowing he's a legend. Do the homework and watch it. See, sort of the last detail. Absolutely one of, uh, instantly one of my favourite films uh, uh, ever. It's incredible. But then you watch A Few Good Men, you go, he's great in A Few Good Men. Like, he's, he's almost like the most... I mean, he's not overdoing it. Tom Cruise is as broad as you can fucking get. And then when I watched Jurassic Park, what was interesting about this time I've watched Jurassic Park, I watched it even before lockdown, just before lockdown, uh, a year and a bit ago. And you go, it's, 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 very, it's a very flimsy film. I think it's almost, it's almost Steven Spielberg's worst film in terms of direction. Every single scene is set in a field... Uh, like, basically, you can do an awful lot with uh, some uh, plants from a garden centre, 20 feet of pretend electric fence and two jeeps 
Do you know what I mean? Most of the film is people sat around like a jeep or something like that, talking. Then you've got a couple of animatronics. You've got the the uh, Triceratops and uh, the Brachiosaurus, which is my my least favourite bit in Jurassic Park is the Brachiosaurus bit. I find it boring. My most favourite bit is the bit when the T-Rex is chasing uh, Jeff Goldblum on the back of a jeep. I think it's brilliant. Uh, I really like Jurassic Park, but I uh, it's weird. I watched it this time and it was like um it's not like it's um a film that i grew up with that i'm really trying to um uh, cling on to nostalgia and hope that it's still good uh it's like i watched it i watched strangers from a train which is like a 50s film and it's one of the best films i think that might actually be hitchcock's best film and then you watch jurassic park and every, all of the scenery is incredibly mundane, but almost every shot is iconic. And it's someone s- stood next to, wearing a yellow Mac, stood next to a day-glow Jeep, and you go, that's an iconic shot. And it's weird, because the elements of each shot are, aren't anything special. And it was like one of those films where you go, that is a 90s film. It wasn't like I grew up watching this and there's a direct link between me and that. It was that you can watch this now in isolation and you can go, that is a 90s movie, you know? Like, um, like you can appreciate it for a movie that was made in an era rather than Jurassic Park is still one of the best blockbusters from our generation. You can now look at it. Do you, know what I mean? do, you, do you understand what I mean? You can look at it in the same way as you can w- watch a Hitchcock movie and go, for its time, not even Jurassic Park for its time, because the special effects are still phenomenal. Um, but I don't know. It was, it was kind of like... It was sort of like... A, I think films become time capsules. And I feel like it, before lockdown, you watch Jurassic Park and you go, yeah, 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 because I mean, they're still making sequels to it. Yeah, 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 it's fine. But then when you watch it now, you go, it's... It, it, there are moments of it that are incredible, you know. But... And I've got nothing bad to say about Jurassic Park, but I think that when you watch it bit by bit, a lot of the shots are very kind of... There's some amazing ideas in there. The T-Rex attack is still incredible, and a lot of the visuals that he uses are great. But in terms of, like, setting up shots, it's kind of like... It's people stood in a uh, a fake jungle having a bit of a chat and i don't know it's kind of like it's not not every shot is a banger it's almost like workmanlike in places um which i found really interesting but i, lo- I love it anyway uh we'll do one bit of fan mail real quick and then we'll uh play a song and get our guest on yeah yes but do you know what i mean about that yeah i think so it's all my, but is that more that we've come to the point where 90s films are their own era so it's that we've lived through it and we've gone Oh, I recognise that as like a, a trope of it. And it's just that you're going, you're enjoying it on a level of, yeah, it's good, it's a 90s movie, you know, in the same way that... It's a film that I remember seeing three times at the cinema and then growing up watching it over until I'm sick of it and then being in the mood for it again and then watching it and seeing it a year and a half ago and then yesterday. And you go, oh... And now I feel like, as I watched it, you know, this is a bloody great 90s movie, like a Michael Crichton movie or a John Grisham movie, you know? Hmm. Uh, it's like of that era, and it's fucking good. Uh, and you can, I could enjoy it again. 
because it wasn't like I'm not comparing it to stuff now. I'm sort of like watching it and going, "Fucking hell, look what they managed to do in the '90s." And some of the special effects are just like unbeatable. Like, yeah, they haven't imp- they haven't they haven't improved on it. Hello, fan mail, five star fan club, five stars. Hello, Nick and Matt. So glad you finally got around to mentioning the highly underrated Bubba Hotep. P.S. Reminders of your email address for fan mail. We've done that. Fan club at foobarradio.com. Maybe you'll get some fan mail this way. Just saying. Henry O. Webster via Apple Podcasts. All right. Is that a backhand? I don't know if he's trying to say. He's put a, I he's think put basically, a... I think Henry O. Webster, oh. Henry O. Webster uh, sounds to me, I don't know about you two boys, Nick and Matt, but he sounds to me to be a bit of a cunt. <laughs> also, so I, knew- I don't believe that was the only time we ever mentioned Bubba Hotep. Feels like we've definitely done that millions of times, surely. But perhaps, perhaps. I, I don't know. I, don't, I, can't, I can't even remember mentioning Bubba Hotep. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel Medcar. Hi, Nick, Nathaniel Medcar, Natalie Bryan, Wrigley Scott, Stephen Seagal. I'm Christopher. I watched Judy this week after a long Easter weekend, and I really loved it. It may have been because I'd had a few too many drinks, but I found it very moving. It's quite soapy and over the top, but I thought Renee Zellweger was so incredible and heartbreaking as Judy Garland. And definitely a worthy Oscar winner. Keep up the good work, Lewis. Yeah, keep meaning to watch Judy. I feel like it's going to be really sad. But when the first pictures of um, Renee Zellweger came out as Judy Garland... It was like, forget about it, look at that. That's, I mean, it looks in- fucking incredible. Um, yeah, well, I'm glad that you liked it. Uh, and, um, yeah, when I'm ready for the emotional trauma <laughs> of watching uh, the Judy Garland movie, then I'll, 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 I'll give it a watch and I'll tell, I'll tell you all about it. Um, great, hey. well, let's play a song. Yeah, nigga, I'm still fucking with you. Still waters one deep. Still Snoop Dogg and D.I. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We're back. We're back live. We're not live. Um, we're pre-recorded and we're in the studio. We're not in the studio. Uh, I'm in my uh, spare room and Nat's in his washroom. We're joined now by a comedian and now author, Tez Ilyas. Hello. You, I'm all right. How you doing? I'm good, thank you very much. I just realised I was gonna book my book book out like that and be like, book, yeah, I am an author, and then I realised I didn't, I haven't got it with me, so it's it's like it's like over there somewhere. So like, but just believe him though, I am. I believe, I believe that you have. Yeah. I've read it, I read it, so I know, it's, I know it's real. Oh, amazing! Awesome. Well, I, got it, I got it on Audible. Got it on Audible. Said it in my ears. I haven't actually, phys- I haven't physically read a book. I'm not crazy. I, I read it to you. <laughs> right. Okay. Can we just? All right. Cut the okay. bullshit. Right. Right. So what? What? So right. So. So hang on, if you listen to something uh, on Audible, is that the same as reading a book? Well, it's been read to me. Yeah, but so, yeah, that's I not. Mean, that, this is this is the nuts and bolts of the question, Nathaniel. All right, is it the same as reading a book? Probably not. I would say no. If you listen, if you listen to To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Mm-hmm. Can you say I've read To Kill a Mockingbird? Or is there not something still, you know, still sacred about one person holding a book in their hands and reading it in their own voice in their head, maybe doing voices for all the characters, depending on what book it is? 
But is there not something still sacred about that? Or, you know, is listening to an audio book cheating a little bit? I, I can't believe you haven't read my book, Nathaniel. Yeah, I did lie. Thanks. Yeah. Can't, yeah, we've both let you down, I'm afraid, there, Tez. <laughs> uh, me and... Uh, I, I, no, because I, I, um, I, 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 have, I have started your book, Tez. I just haven't uh, got very far, but I am a slow reader. You're reading it in real terms, huh? But I was reading it. I was reading it... Um, IRL. In real life. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, Okay, so you've listened to the whole thing. No, but that was a serious question because it's kind of like, you know... I can guess, yeah. Do you feel I would have missed something, Tez, by experience? I don't know. I've never, I've never listened to an audiobook in my life. Have what? You one? No, I've listened to podcasts, obviously. I get the concept, but I've never listened to one. Even as a child on a long journey? Oh, maybe. I don't know. Because when, no, we my... when we were driving places, when we were driving places, my dad used to just stick on Beaver Towers and on the, uh, on the, old, on the, old, on the old cassette. On your, yeah, and it would shut us up in the back for up, upwards of three hours. <laughs> no, my dad would have the Bollywood tunes on. Okay. When um, I was a kid, I used to have one where beep when you turn the page, it beep. You follow it with your finger. I feel like I have heard them at school. It does, that does ring a bell. The old beep thing rings a bell. Well, I, the beep thing sounds doesn't ring a bell with me. Um, but maybe if it was a bell and rather than a beep. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the beep thing, the beep test. So you're reading along. Yeah. And it beeps. It says, it says start. When, when it beeps, turn the page. And you I, sort I of don't understand. It's, it's when you learn to read. I don't understand why either of you... I mean, this is a classic icebreaker, right? This is right when you go, when you listen to an interview and they go, wow, they really got to the fucking core of that person, but they didn't ask any... This is like Hot Wings, right? This is like an episode of fucking Hot Wings where where, where Tez is on and now I'm saying, have you... Oh, no, it's reading, a, it's, reading a, it's reading the book the same as listening to the audio book. And then you're meant to like spiral off into debate. And he's saying that he's never even listened to one. But when pushed, he says he might have, and you're just sidestepping it. I've start. I don't want this to be another hour of me talking, right? <laughs> I've I've just thrown out a questionnaire, and now it's up for you two to get to the nuts and bolts of it. Let's. Okay, so well, you're, you're, listening, like I've had you're listening to the Sausage Factory. This is this is another episode of Sausage Factory. Oh, that should have been on silent. I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> this is. This is one of the worst starts to any guest we've ever <laughs> And it's just you simply just refusing to answer the questions. Right, okay. It's listening to phone in Tez. I said no it isn't. Okay. Go on, I'll stick my neck out on the line and I'll say if you listen to an audiobook, you haven't read the book. Okay, well I would say that what's nice about the audiobook and knowing you, Tez, is I hear your voice reading it because you're you're you, you're the author but you're also a personality so is the author reading his own book it's not an actor pretending to be you reading yes it. you're correct so it's a different experience but that's not answering the question that was an answer well i guess i guess it isn't i think you're right it probably isn't the same experience of reading it but it is a different experience isn't it a little bit like watching the film like, have you like have you read have you read Jurassic Park? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
why I've watched the film. Maybe a little. Yeah, because if you only watched Lord of the Rings, you wouldn't know who Tom Bombadil is. And I would say that's a good thing. I don't know who Tom Bombadil is, still. He's that, isn't he the tree guy? Yeah, he's a side, side character that took up 50 pages in the first Lord of the Rings book for no reason. Doesn't make any material difference to the rest of the plot. Right. And they cut him rightly, so it's one of the worst characters I've ever read. <laughs> if you well, listen to 50 it, pages. I think part of, the, part of reading, right, is the battle between you wanting to fall asleep and keeping your eyes open, right? And it's something that you have to earn that. And to get to the last page, you feel like you've achieved something. If you can listen to a whole book with your eyes closed, then you're not actually doing any of the effort. It's just happening to you. The book is happening to you, and you can drift in and out. Whereas when you're reading, you have to concentrate. Mm. You probably get more of the book in your head. Awesome. Guys? Awesome. No, I, I, I agree. I, as I said, I've never really listened to an audio book, apart from maybe at school or something. But in my adult life, I've never bought or listened to an audiobook, is what I'll say. Sure, but you've done one now. I have done one because it's what the people want. But so we'll ask you about your book in a second. But yeah. when you were reading the book out, mm. yeah, as an audiobook, were you, were there parts of you that were thinking, oh, I wish I'd changed that bit? Or even though it was a couple of months ago, I'm actually a lot better at writing now. Yeah, and, and, and I was hoping it was shorter, um, the book, because... It's because it's, pain- it's 450 yeah, pages. it's, it's yes. long. Also, it's, it's really painful sitting on a stool and reading out loud for three hours at a time. I got an abdominal strain uh, to show how unfit I'd been during the whole of lockdown. It was one of the most painful things I've done, physically painful things I've done recently. It was, it was, a, real, it was a real exercise. And how many days did it take? How, how many pages can you get through in three hours? Um, I think we did. Fifth, I think we did, it took five days, and I think we averaged about eighty pages a day, roughly, give or take. That's not bad. And then there was a glossary and all that sort of stuff to do at the end. Well, yeah. Um, so okay. So you've got quite a complicated. Uh, so your book is called. Where is it? It's a complicated title. It's called Diary. The secret. The secret diary of a British Muslim aged 13 and three quarters. And the book has got a glossary at the back because you've written it in a colloquial voice. Mm-hmm. And so it's got a glossary in the back for all the words that people might not be familiar with. And it's also got an extensive cast of characters at the beginning. Like There's like four pages of... I'm just doing statistics because I haven't really read it. But there's like, <laughs> but there's like four and a half pages of every ca- cast of characters of people. So, you, so when you get lost in the book, you can flip back and forth to the beginning for the cast of characters and the glossary at the end. Yeah, was that your idea? No, my editor's idea. Clearly, your she was amazing. Clearly, she idea. clearly she was getting lost while reading it. Going, <laughs> who was that? Um, and then I would be like, yeah, that was my second cousin twice removed. And they were like, oh, yes, yes, you did mention them 300 pages ago. I remember now. But it was like, but let's not add more words to the body of it. Why don't we just do kind of like an index and a glossary and then we can yeah. solve it that way. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. otherwise, I think it would take, she was, the editor was saying it would take people out of the experience if I did footnotes. Like every time I use a Punjabi word, every time I introduce a new character, if I did a footnote about them, it would just take people out of the... That's what she said. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. I think it's written, though, 
um, uh, I'm sure your editor is very professional and knows exactly what they're doing. But the the glossary, I think, I think once you read it, even if you don't understand the word first, you will understand the meaning of the word very quickly. I don't think I needed a glossary really by the end. I think and you could, understand I, what that is. I don't want to be. I don't want to be that guy. But going back to the audio book. Now, when you, when you when you read through when when you read through the book, do you do four and a half pages at the beginning of the cast of characters, and do you at the end do the glossary? Yeah. Because if it was footnotes, you could skip in. But I mean, how does that work? There's just the because it's split into chapters, right? The audiobook. So there's a chapter at the beginning which is cast list, which you could skip if you wanted to, I guess. Um, but I guess that it's quite funny in just me reading a list of names and who they are for 17 minutes. Is that what you did, though? Is that what is in the... Yeah, yeah, look, Nathaniel's nodding. He's, I mean, I've not heard it, but Nathaniel's nodding. Yeah, yeah. It's really odd place. You're right. It, as an audiobook experience, that is odd. But it is, you're right, it makes it funnier. I thought that stuff kind of works. It works as a joke on the audiobook because yeah. you realise, oh, well, this has got hundreds of characters in it. Yeah, it's like that Family Guy thing where they long the joke out too much, too long. And yeah. it stops being funny and then becomes funny again. Yeah, it's like that. I would say mm. as well that hearing it as an audiobook, it does feel like you're putting in a performance the whole way through. It doesn't feel at all like you're reading it. Does it feel that way when you're doing it? Do you have to feel like you're always on it? Or can you drift off ever and you're just reading? I was so self-conscious when I was reading it out loud in, in the audio booth because I'd... I didn't know if I was doing a good job or not because there was no, you know, we're, we're used to having a live audience and being constantly told every minute or so, you're doing a good job because they're laughing. Mm. So when you're doing something, a presentation or in this case, reading a book out loud with no immediate feedback from a group of people validating you, it's, you become suddenly very self-conscious after you've been doing a thing for 10 years. Mm. So I didn't know how good it was or wasn't, but, but people who've read it, oh, sorry, heard it rather, uh, have tell, told me that they really enjoyed it. So that's, that's good, I guess. Yeah, it does. People who've like read it, people people who've read it, what do they think? S- similar, um, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to appeal to everyone. I think I, I saw one review on Goodreads or Amazon or wherever it was that was like, I slightly fell out of the loop. I didn't understand what was going on, and I was like, oh, fair enough. That's, it's not, it's not going to be for everyone. I haven't written Spot the Dog. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a universally great experience for everyone concerned. But I hope the people like, who like read, Spot the Dog, like Spot the Dog, you can't. I mean, I haven't met a single person in my life who doesn't love that book or those series of books. Um, but, but with mine, I think if you probably concentrate on it and read it, and um, I think you get a lot of it. Also, the reason I wrote it in the colloquial terms and, and used the language that I did was because I thought, well, like, you know, Family Guy does that. Family Guy is one of my favourite shows, and it does that thing where it does like, very American niche references that I don't understand because I don't know the person they're talking about or the beverage that they're talking about, whatever. But I can get, the, I can still get the joke because I'm like, oh, they're doing a thing about thing. So I can still understand. And similarly, like people will dedicate their whole lives to studying Star Trek languages or whatever it is. And I'm like, well, here's a real life thing. You can just, you can suffer for three hours while you read the book. But also I find that is part of the, it's like a relay race or it's part of the exchange of being on the planet is that I don't know how other people deal with it, but sometimes I'll be reading a thing or I'll be watching a thing and there'll be a reference to something that I don't understand. And then that will make me 
look up what the thing I don't understand is, and then I'll learn the thing that I didn't understand, mm. and it will broaden my overall knowledge. The, the source material that I'm, that I'm getting it from might throw up questions, but then I can answer those questions with you know, technology or whatever. And I've done, I've done my own projects where people have said, well, you can't make that, that reference because people won't understand it. And it's just kind of like, well... Okay, and then you end up having to do sort of like a broader reference or a kind of like a reference that you're not necessarily happy with. Yeah, and it's not as fun, is it? It's not as fun because I think like if you're niche and you're specific, then I think um, the people that get it really get it and then uh, the people that don't get it but want to can find out. I don't know. I, but I don't understand how that works sometimes because I think I would look it up. But I guess there are people out there that don't mm. and, and just go, I don't understand that. And then they refuse to. I sometimes think people who make programs don't give their audience enough credit, though. And that's part of the problem, where it's like, I think your audience probably will do that, but there's an assumption from program makers that they <clears throat> Whereas actually, I think people in general are much more interested and interesting people than they probably give them credit for. Yeah, mm. and I think also, given the title of the book and given my face on the book, I think it's a certain type of person that would want to read it in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'd assume. Yeah. And it's selling it, isn't it? It's it's you. You're selling it as you. So you're yeah. buying it as someone who's a fan of yours. Yeah. You probably know going in the kind of experience you're going to get. What I thought was really interesting about it, though, it's it's so it's your it's written as like a a sort of diary. But is it? Based on a real diary? At well, all? no. If you'd have if you'd have if you'd have read the introduction, Nathaniel, <laughs> yeah, you'd know that <laughs> didn't keep a diary when he was young. But this is ba- <laughs> as close as you can get to a diary. Uh, he's gone and interviewed lots of family members and friends from his childhood as he was growing up, and he's recontextualised it through his adult brain. But basically, he's tried to be as true to who he was then as he could possibly be. So it's as good as a diary without keeping a diary. Isn't that about right, Tess? Almost, you've almost read out the foreword there. That is, that, is a, that is very good paraphrasing of the foreword. I didn't read it all, but what I did read counted. Yeah, yeah, you, think... you really understood what he read. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10 for comprehension. I, um, I, when I think of my... Cause it's, it's you from 13 to 18. Mm-hmm. Right? So you from 13... To start university. Yeah. From about 1997 to 2001? That, that, that is correct, yeah. Well done, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> Nick chiming in with cold hard facts. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like, my, when I think back on that time, my teenage years don't, I struggle to remember a lot of detail about them for no good reason. I don't think they're terribly interesting. And what you've done is that it feels very much like solid, like... You've done it. Have you done it with like a calendar of what's happening then in the world? And it's very kind of well informed. Were you as well informed then as you are now? Like, were those events things you're aware of? Because they seem to have an effect on what's happening in your everyday life. Yes, all of the events that I wrote in the book, e.g., Dana's funeral, you know, World Cup 98, the Soho bombings, all those things, that were things that I definitely, definitely remember happening at the time. so that's actually sorry. Um, this is all very exciting. That's actually a really good way of starting one of these projects, right? Mm. Is to go, you know, September 11th, Diana, and you. Everyone knows what they were doing, 
who they were with, what was happening at that moment. And if you put together all of those big incidents and you strung them along in a line, then you can kind of like work out all the stuff that's in between. Yeah. If you did, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, is that what you did? That's what I did. I, was, I listed out every month of every year that I was covering from January 97 to October 2001. Um, and then went on Wikipedia and Google and just went on all the things that happened over those months and years and just jotted down the ones that I can remember. Political, sporting, fighting, all of those sorts of local events and stuff, all those things that happened. And all the ones that I could remember, I wrote them down. And then most of them came out of the book because it didn't serve the narrative. But, you know, I remember who knocked out Amelie Moresmo in Wimbledon third round because it was in my college diary that you had to keep for your homework. So I had a diary for college that you had to note your homework in. And I exclusively kept it for noting sports results, including obscure stuff such as who got knocked out in the third round of Wimbledon in 2001. It's a really odd behaviour, but obviously I thought it mattered at the time. But it's come back. It, it's been useful. It paid off. <laughs> yeah, it has, it has been useful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember how much I loved Ronnie O'Sullivan. Not Ronnie O'Sullivan. Stephen Henry, like I loved Stephen Henry growing up. Like, obviously, um, but but right now really, you're, you're, really you struggle to remember. You struggle to remember who he is against one of his competitors. Some shame. <laughs> um, I remember. I realised how much I love Steve Davis. Yeah, Steve Davis was before my time. I mean, come on. So. <laughs> I remember him. I remember him on um, the Think It's All Over. <laughs> um, what did he do on that? He did a fun little stint for a bit, didn't he? He took over, I think, as a Garini or someone. He, he was on it for a season or two. They think he's. he's, quite, so he's they quite, think he's all over was one of those shows that you didn't actually have to be into sport. Well, I mean, I remembered that. I sorry, this is not anything to do with your book now. I just remembered, but it doesn't have to be. That's the thing. It's a chat. I remembered that I'm telling you and the listeners <laughs> and, <laughs> and Natalie, our producer. <laughs> um, but I remembered that I used to watch Question of Sport every week. I've never been interested in sport, but I used to watch that every week. Still hmm. on that, Sean? I know. I watched it the other day. Mm. For some, I can't remember why I watched it. Anyway, anyway, Tez, we've been in lockdown. Yeah. How did this book come about? Um, because we were in lockdown, I think. Like, I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but I needed a project. Um, that they came to me, the publishers came to me 13 months ago, almost like the week of the first lockdown. Um, they, the first week of the first lockdown, they came to us and they said, Oh, remember when you pitched us an idea to write a book a couple of years ago? Well, you know, do you want to? And we were like, Oh, yeah, this is, I've forgotten about it. I was like, Yeah, this is great timing. Um, and then they were like, Well, okay, let's, let's work it out. And then by Middle of, I think mid June, I started writing it. Uh, it took me three months to write the first draft, and then a painful back and forth editing process, which takes another three, four months, and then a <laughs> really painful legal read. There's a lot of, mm, I don't know if you want to say that, or maybe change that person's name would be very advisable. And they were kind of, they ask you, but they're telling you, they're like, do you want to change that person's name? I'm like, no, I don't think I do. They're like, change, change that person's name, please. And they're like, <laughs> well, say that the first time, then don't give me, don't suggest it like it was an option. Um, and then I did the audiobook in March, so last month, and then yeah, here we are, published last week. Um, why? Why is the? Why was the edit painful? Oh, because I just hate editing, Nick. Not that I don't know if it was that painful an edit in itself, but I just don't like. I'm not a very good editor. I'm not very good at going stuff over stuff that I've done myself, and then because I'm very biased in my head, 
So I'm not very good at going, oh, yeah, that doesn't work. That's not good. I need someone else to tell me. I need. So when Reddit was like, oh, yeah, do you know work on that bit? I'm like, yeah, but what specifically on that bit do you want me to do? Because I can't tell. Because at 400, like at 450 pages, right? I mean, were you given like a word count or a page count? Because it seems to me that it could have been shorter, right? Mm. I'm not like saying it needed to be shorter. I'm just like saying you could have written a shorter book. But so 450 pages is, is not an insignificant it's, it's, it's four, book. It's 400 pages. 400. So when it comes to editing, it's kind of like you go, yeah, you could edit to get, kind of maybe get... Why are you editing? Are you editing to get the page count down? Or are you editing um, to get qual- things more qual- concise? Quality, I think. Um, I remember the, fir- the first draft I gave to my editor, she was like, the book's very quiet. So I think there's no dialogue in it. And in my head, I was like, because yeah, it's a di- diary, isn't it? So there's generally not dialogue in a diary. And then she made the good point of like, yeah, but is it a diary though? Because you didn't actually keep a diary. So let's just cheat a little bit. And I went, that is also a valid point. Um, so there was bits in the book that I brought alive with dialogue and made them in the present tense rather than like describe the action and live the action in the diary rather than just going, oh yeah, and then that happened and then that happened and then that happened rather than doing that, which made it, I think, more interesting to read. And then there were bits that came out and then a few bits that got added. A lot of sporting references got taken out of the book. I mean, there's probably another half a book on top of this that I'd written just with sporting references in it. So they all came out. Um, probably for for the for, for good reason. Um, the, I think originally, I think altogether, I probably written about one hundred fifty thousand words, and my target was eighty thousand. And I think what's in the book is about one hundred hundred five thousand words. But my target at the beginning was eighty thousand. And I remember when I first started writing in mid June, whenever it was, I was I was I was like, how am I going to write eight university dissertations? That is eighty thousand mm. words. Is that's I felt like it was beyond my capability. But then. I wrote 110,000 in that first draft of thing, and I was like, oh, okay, well, you can write So that. what what were your, um, what were your uh, markers and how, uh, you know, like, talk us through, like, a day of writing in lockdown. Um, so I would try and write a month a day. I, I would only write about, I would, I would work about four or five days a week. So I took the week, I would make sure I took the weekends off to feel alive uh, during lockdown. And, um, but yeah, when I sat down, I tried to write a month a day. So there's 57 months in the book. So that's roughly like 57 writing days. Um, and I tried to average about 1,400 words a month, which would have taken me to about 80,000 words. Uh, and so obviously for some months, it came to like 2,500 words and other months were like barely scraped 1,000 words. But average, yeah, probably averaged about 1,800 words in the end altogether. But yeah, that's what I was like. I'm going to target 1,400 words per writing day um that would cover up a month and then sometimes it's a bit more sometimes a bit less sometimes it's two months back to back just because i was in the groove i was in the rhythm i didn't want to stop it and i always wrote at night like i can't like i'm I'm a, I'm a night owl so i tend to wake up uh the reason i was five minutes late for this is because i got up like half an hour before this interview went to the bathroom and then got here as fast as i could to, as in from my bed to to here um oh well, um, I was five minutes late also, so you were bang on time. Oh, great. Uh, excellent. I was on time, so I was waiting. Like, no, well, you got to listen to a fat track, Nathaniel, so, <laughs> which, I, which I missed out on. Um, uh, yeah, so I always, I always worked at night, so I always tended to work after 10pm, and then I'm easily distracted as well. So the things I was writing about, I was like, oh, I wouldn't look into that a bit more. And then I would start just looking into a random thing and that would take an hour and I'm like, just get back to writing. Um, so on the good writing days, I could bang out those 1400 words in like less than two hours. 
And on my worst writing days, it would take like, I think the longest I spent writing 1400 words or a chap or a month was like six hours, um, just on and off, on and off, just, just being constantly distracted. And also these things are very distracting as we heard, you know, mm-hmm. 20 minutes ago. How Phones. Much? Yeah. Just for the listeners at home. Of course. Phones. He, he, Phones. W- he lifted up his phone. He waggled it in front of the camera. He put it back down again. Phones are very distracting. Nathaniel? I was going to say, how much of a nostalgist are you for that time anyway? Or were you before you wrote the book? Is it something you think about a lot? I do think about my high school years very fondly. Um, and I do think about my memories with my cousins very fondly as well. So just sort of messing about in their attic or out playing football or out playing knock-door run and whatever nuisance we were getting up to ourselves and stuff. I do look back on that time with a lot of nostalgia. And like just like you know, your favourite sweets and chocolates and crisps and stuff. Like just the first time you had those. And like not because I have money, I could just go out and in terms of food anyway, I could just buy whatever I want whenever I want. But when I was younger, like, things were such a treat. Like, having my favourite chocolate bar felt like such a treat. And I do miss that time of, like, how lucky I felt and how fortunate I felt to be able to eat, like, my favourite chocolate or having a McDonald's or whatever. Whereas mm-hmm. I would just take that stuff for granted. What was your favourite chocolate? Um, it was between Time Out and Crunchy. Time Out and Crunchy. Crunchies are still good, aren't they? They're really good. What was Time Out? Wafers and it's like a it's like a Twix. Any no caramel though. So it's like you get the wafer with the chocolate and then the with the thin layer of chocolate and then the wafer biscuits and then the wrapped around in chocolate. I noticed that thing where like I'd nibble the sides, I'd nibble mm. the chocolate off the sides and then leave the bit in the middle to eat at the end. I used to do that all the time. I do that with everything that was like that like Kit Kat, Time Out, even Crunchy. I do that. Anything that has like a filling in the middle, I'd nibble the side yeah. of it first. Well, with the Twix, I'll eat the caramel off the top, and then I'll just eat the biscuit. But it's sort of it's, might as well throw the biscuit out, really. To be honest, you they should that. either eat it together or eat it separately. But yeah. <laughs> they were designed a certain way specifically, weren't they? Sorry, Nathaniel. I've got to say, you mentioned then kind of getting into trouble, but I was sort of struck by you are like. Essentially, you're a nice boy, aren't you? I was a bit of a square compared to, like, most of my friends, yeah. Do you think, like, I got the impression that there's a bit in it where um, all your friends get in trouble, you avoid getting into trouble, you're not found out, but you're involved in the naughty event. Yeah. You are not, you don't get in trouble. And I thought, I imagine, though, that, thinking back of you, the character then, that you would be a very nice kid in the class. I would imagine your teachers quite liked you and maybe they let you off. Do you think that's possible? It might be, but I, I look back and I think the opposite. I think I was, I was a clever kid, but I was very obnoxious and I was very talkative in class and I couldn't shut my mouth. So I was constantly interrupting, constantly talking to Hasim, my best friend um, in high school, so I think I was a constant nuisance in my class, like which is why my, because in, in our end of year report cards, they give us effort grades, not what, like not what academically how bright they think we are. Right. And for so some of the classes, they were like three and fours, and I was like, what? but I, like, I get like ninety percent in my exam. How am I getting a three or four out of like one being the best, four being the worst? 
how am I getting a three or four on, in this? And I look back now and I think, yeah, obviously, because teachers were talking to each other in staff rooms and thinking what an absolute nuisance that kid is. And I never appreciated that at the time. I was like, yeah, of course, in staff room, they're going to be bitching about the kids they don't like. And I think I was one of those kids that, because constantly in every single um, parents' evening, it was the same thing. He's bright, but he needs to shut up and not disrupt class. So I actually think that, yeah, they, they think, I think they thought I was a bit of an obnoxious kid. I mean, I've ended up in the right job, clearly, but... Do you think they're right, though? Because I think of, like, in the book, you are trying to be a doctor, you want to be a doctor, and but academically, you're kind of good in secondary school, but when you start doing A-levels, you get quite average results. And I had a similar thing. And But it feels like now, as an adult, you're someone who has written a book in three months that's 400 pages. And it feels like you're obviously a smart person. Do you think they're right? Do you, do you ever feel that maybe they were right and you were a bit of an underachiever then? Because now in this, in your career now, you're managing it very well and you do feel like you are an intelligent person, right? Do you feel that they might have been right and you could have... Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. I mean, look at my A level results. I completely took my eye off the ball, and I think my school not having a sixth form or making the bad decision of not going to Clitheroe Royal Grammar School and going to the local college instead was a really bad decision. Then I don't regret it now because things have worked out. But it was a bad decision for that kid to not do that uh, because I think that he needed that structure. He needed someone. He needed people to tell him to shut up and people to tell him to concentrate on his work because when college gave him a free reign him, me, when college gave me a free reign, I kind of just went off, academically went off the rails a bit. Yeah, um, yeah no, I definitely, definitely, academically, I definitely underachieved. But I also realise now, like, I couldn't, if someone said to me now, go back and do a degree, I don't have the stamina for it. I don't have the attention span. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. If someone said, right, degree, oh, <laughs> Sorry? To, to do a degree, you don't have the attention span to go back and now, do Now, like, if someone said, now, go and do three years bachelor's in whatever... Like, as a social experiment, I might say yes, but I know I'd struggle because I don't have the stamina for it. But that's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you have a career that, that you that you like. Mm. Um, whereas when you were doing your degree before, when I was doing my degree, when we when people do, do their degrees, it's generally before they've kind of, like, worked out what it is that they're doing. Mm. So it comes at that point in your life when you're thinking about what the next part of your life is going to be. Whereas if you're already in the next part, it's like a backward step to go back and do... Do you know what I mean? It's just like... Yeah, yeah I know people yeah. are mature students, but it's like, what what is the reason to get a degree? And it might be because, you know, let's just say you wanted to go away and train to be a doctor and you were mm. going to give up comedy mm. and you're going to leave this life behind, you're going to go off and you're going to do something else. Then you'd be able to focus on doing a degree, wouldn't you? I don't know if I have the stamina for it, though. Like, even this, like, when I was saying about working on the book, I couldn't do more than, like, three, four hours a day. I like, think that that's I fair. Really, I could I find it really hard. But I think in terms of work, I think when you're scheduling your own work and you're working from home and you're doing creative stuff, I know that when I did data entry, I could do nine hours a day because I had to, because I was being paid to do it and I was sat in my office and do it. But... um but when I did creative stuff, you can't sit down and do it the same way. Mm. You almost have to sort of like trick your brain into working because I don't work as in I sit down and I just crank out, a, you know, a, a song or whatever it is, right? 
but if I can kind of like spend four hours in the right place in my mind to get that work done, I like working with people. So I'll have sort of like writing meetings with people that last about four hours long. And I get all of, and then after four hours, it becomes a little bit like, is there anything more that we're going to get out of today? Don't mm. we need to sort of like digest what we've done today, process that in our heads, and then we can come back and write some more stuff tomorrow? Yeah. I think four hours, like, it would be great to wake up at eight, do four hours of writing, be finished at 12, and then get on with the rest of your day every day. Isn't that what Charles Dickens did? Let's, but, say, I mean, it Let's say it was. He didn't, he, didn't have a, he didn't have one of these. Yeah, he didn't I'm have a, a, a phone. He didn't have, I'm he waving didn't a phone. Have, waving he, didn't a phone. Have, he didn't have Twitter, mate, so his life is easier. But, but do you know what I mean? It's just sort of like, I don't think that you can, you can't really equate well, maybe you can, but I can't do the same with creativity as I can with kind of like um, uh, a job, you know, that, yeah, well, jobs you, that I've had in the past. But could you do those jobs now? Yeah. Could you go and do nine hours of data entry now, today? Yeah. Or tomorrow? I couldn't. I'd, I'd love it, in fact. Um, I, I've done those jobs. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it tomorrow. One of my, I can't tidy my own flat, but one of my favourite jobs was uh, loading the glass wash, washer at work in the pub and then putting it on. It lasts about a minute and a half. And then you'd open the drawer, let them steam dry, uh, and then when they were cool enough to touch, you'd put them back on the shelves and then you'd spend the rest of the day... It was a quiet pub, but you'd spend the rest of the day loading up that glass washer again. Loved it. I knew where I was, and at the end of the day, I didn't take any of it home with me. It was creative writing. I think about it all the time. And my brain is filled with voices screaming at me for attention and I can't let it go. Whereas data entry, who gives a fuck? Finish that for the day, bye, and then I've got other things to concentrate on. I loved it. Uh, we're told that Charles Dickens wrote from 9am till 2pm in quiet, had one break for lunch, but then that was it. Didn't go back in the afternoon. Yeah, so brilliant. What? What an absolute fucking legend. Mine's the way around. I was 10pm till 3am, so very similar. 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 But I used to... I, I think I used to work at night and then life complications come along and then you end up rescheduling. I hate I hate working in the day. And I love... I, I like what you said. I like when you feel like you're the only person awake and then you can really concentrate. Trouble yeah. with YouTube is it's 24 hours, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the problem with these things. Um, I, even when I had a day job when I was working in London, like it just the, lifted his just lifted his phone up to the camera. Just a recurring recurring thing. Um, when I had a day job working in the Home Office in London, like similarly, I, I would get my best work done when everyone left the office. So when everyone left the office at like by six, then between six and eight, I would like do all my day's work because I was distracted when everyone was in the office because I'm a chatty guy. Yeah. But then that's why that's why they're eight hours, right? That's why working days are that long because of all the distractions. Yeah, maybe, in a, but what, he... in a, in an eight hour a day, you get what three hours of work done? Yeah, probably if that. But I had really bright people and hardworking people around me. Like they felt, I felt like they were working hard all day, so I made it my mission to distract them, um, and take them out for like hour long lunches and stuff. Like lunchtime. Um, yeah, so I'm sure they appreciated. You know what? There's a there's a, a, a someone recently sent me a screenshot from 
a civil service online learning thing. So every few months, the civil service have to do like an online learning thing. And this one was about, I think it was about bias or something. And someone sent me this thing. And so the civil service, whoever's creating this online learning thing, um, has created this question. And in it, 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 was, it, it said, <laughs> to give an example of a guy, it was an Asian guy. So there's an Asian man's face. They call him Sanji or something. And they went, Sanji does stand-up comedy in the evenings. And I thought, <laughs> hang on. Who's that based on? <laughs> I thought, hang on. I, in my entire civil service career, I'm the only person that I met in those 10 years that does stand-up comedy in the evenings. The fact that this example is of an Asian man is very, very suspicious. And then it said, some people find Sanjay really funny. Other people find him really annoying. And I thought, who has designed this question? That is, it felt very <laughs> personal. It felt, it felt really personal. I was like, that's my 10-year civil service career. That was my legacy. Oh, he's a bit of a, a, bit of a prick, that lad. That was, that, was, that was the legacy that I left behind. Oh, something. That's something. I in my in my day job, I was like a ghost. I would float in, I'd get the work done, and I'd float out again, and no one would talk to me all day. And I'd keep my and they would have loud, loud conversations. I think I'd just started doing stand up. They'd have loud conversations about Jimmy Carr, and like, whoa, did you see Jimmy last night? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I love. <laughs> I love stand-up comedy! And they all loved stand-up comedy. And I was there going, I've, I do stand-up comedy. But not the sort that they'd like. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah, I just kept quiet. I don't know, you've got a legacy, is what I mean. That's, um, that's, that's something, isn't it? Yeah, I'm very, very, very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> something I found very relatable in the book was uh, that every Christmas you put down all the films, you list all the films that are on TV that Christmas, which ones you've taped, which ones you've just watched or whatever. Yeah. And it was a really sort of nice reminder of the year that would be and what films would have been on telly that year. Because it does come across, it's like you are a big film fan, right? You are watching I am. All, the big, all the big movies that come out that year. And there's ones where you're talking about how, how great Casper is. And it's quite a nice uh, time capsule, not of the time, but of a few years later when those films are on TV. That's why yeah. I quite liked it back. Because <laughs> I, I, love, I loved kids' films, and I loved, because they're mainly the films that I watched, and I loved all that. Casper, Flight of the Navigator, all those, like, I don't know, those are, very, those are two very different films, but, like, I, I, but I love, point is I love kids', kids films. Um, and yeah, I used, to love, I used to love opening up a new cassette tape and putting the stickers on and writing the film, the name of the film that I'm going to record and putting it on, making sure it was on long play because that yeah. way I could, I could fit two films on. I figured that out by the amount of films that were not on one tape. Yeah, yeah. Because people listen to this long going, play. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, I used to, I used and did it, you man. break the tag? You know, there's a plastic square tag that you break off and then you go, that's permanent, that is. Yeah, so that, yeah, 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 yeah. But you that could is. actually just put a bit of sellotape on afterwards if you did want to tape over it. Yeah, so nothing, yeah. If you wanted to make or a... bit of, a, a bit of tissue inside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, chew up a bit of tissue and mm. spit that into the into the VHS tape like a mother bird spitting into <laughs> its, its little chick's mouth 
uh, and then you can tape over anything you want. I had uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Muppets Take Manhattan on one tape. Uh, what th- those films? Those yeah. films are, are, are fused together in my mind. What is coming up today? And this is something we never do. Now, what's your favourite film, Tess? <laughs> my favourite film of all times. I have. I have. A, I think my favourite single film ever, and I'm. Not saying it's the best film ever. That is not what I'm. I'm that's, that's not the not question I'm answering. Is. Yeah, my favorite film ever is from *Dust Till Dawn*. Hmm. I wow, sort of silence. Um, no, I like I, it. I, I, I really love that film, and I watched it at a time. I, I went into that film not knowing what it was about, and I love the plot twist. It's obviously written by Tarantino, so I love the dialogue. Directed by Robert Rodriguez, great director. Harvey Keitel, George Clooney, Juliette Lewis, great cast. Um, and I loved everything about it. I loved the plot twist. I loved how gory it was. I loved the slick dialogue. I thought Clooney was amazing in it. And um, I had a lot of lot of fun watching it because the film it just completely switches genre unannounced. And I was like, what? This is now and, a different film. And you didn't know... Because what a, a lot of films would do, if, even if it was following almost the exact same structure, is they would have a scene at the beginning where... There's some kids that are doing something they shouldn't be doing, and then they get killed by vampires. And then there's a gangster movie for half a film, and then the vampires come back and you go, oh, right, yeah, they, I'm not totally surprised. People shy away from, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. Whereas From Dust to Dawn is just a Quentin Tarantino gangster film for half of the film, and then it turns into a vampire film. And there's no inkling coming up, like going, <laughs> oh, by the way, there's going to be vampires in a bit. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's, this is Robert Rodriguez, who did Desperado, Quentin Tarantino, who did Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and they are teaming up to do another gangster movie starring George Clooney. And then you watch it and you go, what the fuck is this? Um, so you didn't know going into I it. had no idea what the film was about. I'd seen the poster... So I saw the poster. It was in my graphics class in uh, in school. And I remember seeing it. And it must have been there as an example of like graphics work or whatever. I remember seeing it thinking, I've never heard of this film. And then when I saw it in the video shop, which I loved going to across the road from me, um, I saw it then. I thought, I'm going to actually, I'm going to watch this film because I saw the poster for it every day for like two years. I'm going to watch it. Why there was a From Dust Till Dawn poster in a class of 15, 16-year-olds is a question that also needs to be asked. But I wasn't asking that question at the time. Um, but when I watched it, I was just mesmerised. And there's, there's a Salma Hayek bit in the middle, just before the plot twist. Mm. Great film. And I the music's great. Yeah. The, the music, what's the name of the boot? Tito and the Tarantulas is the band, because um, he was in Desperado, and then they are the resident band at the Titty Twister in From Dust to Dawn. <laughs> and they sing... Always Titty after Twister. Dark, <laughs> only After Dark or Always After Dark. It's the Tito Tarantula song that uh, Salma Hayek uh, does her dance to. And it's one of the best fucking film songs of all time ever. I love it. I love the fact that you didn't know the twist. I was lucky enough at the beginning of lockdown to watch Terminator and Terminator 2 with my girlfriend. And she'd never seen either of them. And the big thing... How is that possible? Exactly. The big thing about Terminator 2 is that the twist was ruined in all the marketing. And she didn't know that. So she watched Terminator where Arnie was a bad guy. And then she watched Terminator 2. And when Arnie turns into a good guy... Her brain exploded. It was just like, wow, he's a good guy in this. And you go, yes! 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 
She's got to be like the only person that has ever lived on the planet that ever watched that film Pure. Like, and I got to witness it. I was just like, oh my God, yeah, he's a good guy. I know, I know. The film is like that. When you watch it, it is meant to be a surprise. You watch it and you go, oh, right, because it's set up as if he is still the bad guy. But you know, because of trailers and things, that that isn't the case. It is an interesting one to watch. Um, I like I like, uh, I was a big fan of Desperado, so I was pre-sold on Dust Till Dawn. And I, I liked all the, it's got tons of like references to that. Some of the guns are the same, where you have that kind of, oh, right, it's in sort of the same universe as Desperado, and it's got that that sort of Robert Rodriguez, Tarantino, it all feels like it all belongs in the same world as all those. Yeah. So I thought it was a great film when I saw it. I loved it. I didn't, when it came out, I was sort of like, I, I liked, I, it's kind of like the, the Quentin Tarantino changed my little world, and Robert Rodriguez. I think I even preferred Desperado to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I thought Desperado was the greatest film of all time. And so okay. when they're combined, and you see from Dust to Dawn, it was kind of like doesn't quite live up to the sum of all of that, you know. But I've watched for you, it again, Nick. For me, for me. But I watched it again recently, and it is. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really, it is entertaining. It's good. And when you also, you see a lot of other Robert Rodriguez films since, and you kind of like go, oh, it's maybe his second best film. So Yeah, he, is peak. he, did, he did peak in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, um, although he's making a new Spy Kids, so let's hang on for that and see what, what happens. I thought Spy Kids, I saw Spy Kids at the cinema, saw Spy Kids 3D at the cinema, and um, the first Spy Kids is... Fine, <laughs> it's good. It's good. Thoroughly, thoroughly decent. Mm. Um, what I like also about the from the Dawn is once the twist happens, though, the dialogue still is a similar level. So he's still very, still that very spiky Tarantino dialogue, which is even, which becomes even funnier now that vampires are in it. Yes. Yeah. Um, is it Fred? Is it Fred Williamson in From Dust Till Dawn? Yeah. Yeah. And and he took he does that speech about how a grenade goes off in his face in Vietnam. And you go, there's nothing wrong with your face, dude. Like, they didn't put any makeup on his face to make him look like he's got scars. And he does, the, he goes, that's how come I'm so pretty. And you go, there's nothing wrong with your face. You've got no... I always found that a bit weird. Because yeah, like, he's quite, you're quite handsome as it goes. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, if it's a character who is obsessed with this sort of, like, scar on his face that doesn't exist, that's quite an interesting character thing. Like, like someone that thinks that they're hideous to look at. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. But um, I just think it's an oversight. There you go. Um, we've got to finish. We've, we've come to the end of an hour-long chat, Taz. Um, Amazing. I've now got to... Ha- yeah, I know. And <laughs> I've now got to hand you over... I'm sorry to say, but I've now got to hand you over to Nathaniel. Now, we're running out of time, Nathaniel, so you need to right. rock it through this. OK. Taz, this game is called... We've played a game now. It's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person below, based entirely on my opinion, to score points. Beginning with Jennifer Aniston. Is Naomi Campbell better or worse than Jennifer Aniston? Worse. 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 Come on. Jim Carrey, better or worse than Naomi Campbell? Better. Better. Correct. Jim Belushi, better or worse than Jim Carrey? Worse? Worse. John Belushi, better or worse than Jim Belushi? Sorry, John Belushi? Yeah. 
I don't know the difference between those two guys, but I'll say better. No, John, John Belushi is Blues Brothers. Jim Belushi is K9. Come on. All oh, right, but then better than yeah, yeah. Meatloaf, better or worse than John Belushi? Worse, better, worse. Grace, what? yes, worse. Grace Jones, better or worse than Meatloaf? Better, better. better. Catherine Zeta Jones, better or worse than uh, Grace Jones? Worse, worse. Indiana Jones, better or worse than Catherine Zeta Jones? Better, surely. Better. James Bond, better or worse than Indiana Jones? Worse, worse. worse. James Earl Jones, better or worse than James Bond? Better. Better? Oh, yeah. Come be. on. What's that? Is that, a, is that top You got up? fucking ten! You got ten. fucking ten! Got a fucking ten! All right, so that means that you got a ten, which means you're as good as Jim Brister, Thomas Coombs, John Coshaw, Zoe Lyons, Jason Manfred, Zoe and you're better then. David Baddiel, Ken Shane, Mike Drucker, Harry Hill, Dominic Monaghan, Luke Morley with nine. Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Esten, Wayne Frederick, Henry Fraser, Eddie Hearn, David Hepburn, Jason Isaac, Simon West, John Niven, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Michael Oakheim, Miranda Raisin, Griffey Jones, Chris Stark, Marilyn and Sally DeVarcy, Stu Whiffen, Michael J. White, and Gillian White with eight. Richard Herring, James King, Ludy Lane, Henry Norman, Janet Vine, Janet Vegas, seven. Gary and poor old Dave McLean, five. Um, Better than all of them. You did great. You did really great there, Tez. Uh, welcome to the clubhouse. Thank you for talking to us for an hour. Thank you. And well, see you next scary. week, guys. Thanks for um, thanks for it. Thanks for thanks for listening. <laughs>